This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. Today we'll be talking about criminal justice reform and specifically what changes are coming to that, especially under new Attorney General Jeff Sessions. I'm Morgan Lee. I'm an assistant editor here and in the studio with me is Ted again. Hi, Ted. Hi, Morgan. I'm the the go-to replacement for Mark Galley. It's, it's kind of fun that way. It's great to have you here. Now I just kind of like take for granted that you're here. But as you know, as everyone should know, Ted recently came back from Nairobi. I am in this new role as uh, editorial director for Christianity Today. Still still getting my feet wet on that job. Tell us a 10-second cool thing that you miss about Nairobi now that you've been back for a decent amount of time. Uh, being able to see lions eating in the wild 20 minutes after leaving my apartment. That is that is the awesomest thing. Wow. That's still crazy. I'm trying to think where you could go 20 minutes away from here and see anything. You could see a mall. You could see, uh, uh, you know, Giordano's 20 minutes from here. <laughs> All right. Let's you not cry. Pizza. Who is joining us today? Craig DeRoche. Uh, he's Senior Vice President of, of Advocacy and Public Policy for Prison Fellowship. Uh, Prison Fellowship, of course, founded by Chuck Colson, who was a, a very long-time columnist for Christianity Today and uh, had great history. But Prison Fellowship uh, continues to do amazing, amazing work, both in the prisons and on behalf of prisoners. So we are we are happy to hear from uh, Craig on this. He's also a former speaker of the Michigan House of Representatives. Thanks for being with us, Craig. It's great to be with you, uh, Morgan and Ted. It's a privilege to be on the show today. It's awesome. Where are you calling us from? Are you still in Michigan? Yeah, today I'm in Michigan. I uh, live in Michigan, actually, but we're a 50-state organization. A lot of people know that about prison fellowships, so I spend a lot of time during the week in an airplane. So uh, (laughs) later this week, it's going to be in Oklahoma City for Thursday and Friday. Speaking of airplanes, I was just on an airplane the other day, and the flight attendant said, the last person on the plane has to clean the plane. <laughs> or the last passenger. I, anyway, it was just great because... You know, after all these YouTube videos, I you, know, you start to believe them when they say things like this. <laughs> <laughs> I know, everyone was laughing nervously. Well, let's get into our discussion. In recent weeks, Attorney General Jeff Sessions has made it absolutely clear. He won't be following the suit of predecessors Eric Holder or Loretta Lynch in curbing policies that criminal justice reform advocates blame for America's high rates of mass incarceration. Instead, in a recent memo, Sessions instructed federal prosecutors to pursue the harshest possible penalties for drug dealing, gun crime, and gun violence. Sessions' announcement comes just months after Republican and Democrat senators had introduced a bill that would have given judges more discretion in sentencing and rolled back mandatory minimums that became popular in the 1980s and 1990s. This bill also sought to expand prison rehabilitation programs and extended changes made in 2010 to mitigate a disparity in sentencing for possession of the same amounts of powder and crack cocaine. The bill, however, never reached the floor in last year's Congress. Similar efforts in the House never 
never got off the ground, even though Speaker of the House Paul Ryan had said he would be open to it. The bill was just the latest in a broad bipartisan coalition of legislators, governors, and advocates who have pressed for criminal justice reform in recent years. Among them is Prison Fellowship. In addition to ministering directly to thousands of prisoners each year, the organization also works on Capitol Hill and has partnered with a number of groups to press reform, including most recently the NAACP, the ACLU, and the Heritage Foundation. This week on Quick to Listen, we'll be discussing what will and what won't change under Jeff Sessions, how this affects the Christian community, and what the church should know about how the criminal justice system works. And before we get into all of this, I just want to remind everyone that the best way to show your support for the Quick to Listen podcast is by subscribing to Christianity Today magazine. Ted, do you want to plug anything about the new June issue coming out? Uh, probably, but now I'm uh, I'm so deep into the July-August issue that I am— All right, do you uh, want to plug something about the July-August issue then? It is huge. It is a huge double issue with so many articles in it that you should totally subscribe because it is probably the most articles we have run in, in years, and there's some really great stuff. I'm editing an article on uh, dance music in churches and how churches are wondering if mm. and how to incorporate that. It's really interesting. I did this thing last year where I said, is this song Calvin Harris or is it Hillsong? Yes. <laughs> yeah, you ran that as a, as a, as a quiz, right? I wish I know I wanted to do a quiz. Uh, you we wanted should, to do, we a should quiz. do a quiz yeah. as part of this cover story. And then we're doing another piece on uh, whether uh, you know what what to do as robots take our jobs. So I was thinking maybe we can combine those two articles: robot replacing music and like churches. our music. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, um, anyway, but yeah, it's a great. It's a great. It's going to be a great issue. You should totally subscribe. You guys can all do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. Orderct.com slash quick to listen. Thank you so much to all of the people who have subscribed. We know that you're out there and we really appreciate your support. And for everyone else, we hope that this teaser has made you interested. All right. So, Ted, now is the time of the show that we give our gut reactions to this new memo put out by the attorney general. I saw the news on Twitter largely, and it was largely uh, because it was on Twitter. People were outraged about it because that's the only reaction people have to anything on Twitter these days. But Or cynicism. Well, yeah, I suppose so. But I'm actually excited to do this, and this is one of the reasons I suggested this topic today. Because I'm like, man, I just don't know how to think through some of these things. I understand some of the negative consequences that uh, mandatory minimum sentences have had, but how do I think Christianly about this? So so for me, it was, you know, this sounds negative, and I know lots of people who have negative feelings about it, but as a journalist and as a Christian, I thought, I can articulate, I was in prison and you visited me as a biblical principle, but I can't necessarily point to Bible verses on mandatory minimum sentences. So I thought, I I need help on this. So for those of you who do not know, last year I wrote a cover story for Christianity Today about mass incarceration and criminal justice reform. So I did spend some time interviewing folks from Prison Fellowship um, as well as speaking to people who were previously incarcerated. And one thing that did come out when I was doing my research was the fact that there was actually a lot of bipartisan consensus around criminal justice reform and about not necessarily relying on mandatory minimums or some of the more punitive ways that the law had been interpreted over the years, and that that was something that was being implemented in both Republican and Democrat um, states around the country, or I would say like where their governors are that or where their legislators are like that. And so this kind of seemed out of touch, I guess, um, from where the rest of the country had been headed. I, I was disappointed, I guess, that Sessions kind of hadn't reflected this latest thinking. On top of that, though, I, I was really curious um, just about the effect that this is actually going to have, given that this we're talking at the federal level as opposed to the state level, which I know is where most people have to work with the law. 
But let's get into all of this. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. So, Craig, first question for you. Can we just talk about this memo on hand and what it does and does not say? Yeah, the memo for listeners of the podcast, three different things that, that we have going here at the, at the federal government and at your state government. Uh, it's the Constitution, you know, which, which in America, most people know is negative. It says what the government can't do. It's not a positive empowering the government. Then you have the statutes uh, within the constitutional framework, which is the law. You know, we're a nation of laws. We follow the law. All these different cliches. We enforce the law. We prosecute those that break the law. And then we have um, the people that actually hold the job, right? The the executive branch that actually is doing the enforcement, the arresting, the prosecuting, things of that nature, the incarceration. The ju- judicial branch gets the rule on it. The legislative branch gets to write the laws, but all the execution of that is done. So you have the constitutional level, right? Then you have the statute, then you have the execution. And so you can have something in the constitution, you can write it very clearly in statute, but there's a third layer, which is how do the people that actually have the job that are empowered by the voters, you know, improperly seated, in that job actually do their job, right? And that's what the memo is about. It's about the Attorney General of the United States saying uh, previously, hey, listen, I think there's a better way for us to focus um, our attention and our energies. So I'm directing my staff, because I'm the employer, uh, properly in this job, that you're going to focus your energies here. And then um, the new Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, saying, uh, no, I want you to go back to focusing your energies back to where they, they uh, were before, which is on um, trying to arrest and get the longest possible conviction you know, of, of charges for time in prison uh, for people for uh, drug sentencing. In other words, that's going to be my priority, even though that's not exactly what the attorney general said. He said that that's what the law says, right? Uh, um, and so you need to do that. What he's saying is, is actually pretty conservative. And it's saying we are only going to enforce the law as they're written. And we're going to enforce it to the full extent of how the law is written, right? So if there's a problem with how we're enforcing something, you got to change the law. Because my job is not to interpret the law. My job is to enforce it, right? Which is a pretty conservative thing to say. Sure. But the truth is that when, when Congress asked the Auditor General how many federal laws how many federal criminal penalties there were uh, because they wanted an inventory of them so they could could update them and organize them better. After a lot of money was spent in time, the Auditor General said that there was no way of finding them all. So in other words, Congress can't even in the federal government with all of its resources and millions of employees can't even tell us how many different criminal laws there are. The estimate is there's between 300 and 400,000. But again, they're estimating like 100,000 here or there, give or take. <laughs> and, and, and you have the attorney general saying, we're going to enforce all of the laws exactly as they're written. You know, it, it should alarm all of the listeners of this podcast to say, well, how on earth do you do that with something as, as important as justice? Because guess what justice is about? Our God is a God of justice. Our God cared about justice. Our God cared about it in the oldest stories in the Old Testament up through the New Testament and, and compelled us to visit the prisoner, but also to, to seek you know, justice and know that this is something that God is just, God is righteous, but here on earth, we're going to fall short, right? And, and so our values are very important. And, and what's at stake is human life. There's a lot for us to really be alarmed at. I would like to believe that, that um, Attorney General Sessions was saying, I'm going to do this to shock Christians into action. 
because I actually think that the federal government is broken. I'm not sure that's actually what he was doing, though. I think he <laughs> might have actually been thinking, I like locking up all these people that have drug problems for 15 or 20 or 85 years uh, because that'll teach them. I don't know, you know, like because he wasn't really clear. What What is clear, though, is the current policies as written in statute have led to more drug use, more drug dealing, more drug importations, more addiction, more death, more broken families, more communities riddled with, with the drug trade and, and, and addiction and, and, and the, the poverty and all of the other ill effects that come with it. And so their abject, objective failure, right? And he's saying, let's do more of that. You know, let's do what, what we did in the 80s and 90s, because everybody likes the fact that opioid overdoses is up 100 percent. Everybody likes it. It's now affecting every family and not just 10 percent of our families. You know, I got to believe that within him, he knows and, and that the federal government knows that they are not the answer uh, um, to this. But but they're not saying that out loud. So I think this is a wonderful opportunity, this memo. Uh, for Christians to kind of rise up and say, well, we're going to take you up on this, Mr. Attorney General. You are 100% right. We don't want you making up law because <laughs> we don't want any attorney general doing that, right? But at the same time, let's take him up on the opportunities, highlighting one of the biggest catastrophic failures in American history, which is drug policy, and saying, we're going to get involved now. We're going to get involved because our values are at stake. And, and a lot of human lives that God cares about, each and every one of those created in his image are at stake. And so we're going to get involved. This is an invitation for Christians to engage. I did read that the federal system is uh, only about uh, 12, 12% of uh, U.S. prisoners. How uh, How is this, you know, obviously the, the, the problems you've just sketched out largely are uh, local and uh, county and state prosecutors. Do you have any thoughts on how this memo might, or if we have any history of how, how it will uh, affect uh, local prosecution of drug crimes? A lot of this is, is uh, posturing. There are more than 11 million people, between 11 and 12 million people that get arrested in the United States every year, about 30,000 a day, which means more than 1,000 people during this podcast will be arrested today. And so the question we ask ourselves as citizens in a country that is going to arrest a thousand people plus an hour every hour for the for the for the rest of the year, what are you going to do with them? And and when you arrest somebody, are you going to give them a punishment that moves them away from crime? And their time in the system is it going to make it less likely? Two things: are they going to pay back the damage they did and be less likely to do a crime, or are they not paying anybody back and be more likely to do a crime? And then once they've paid back their damages, once somebody's honored the deal, I, I screwed up, I did this wrong. You've asked me to do these 17 things. I've done all 17 of them. Am I a human being again? Am I an American again? Am I still a child of God? In America, we actually say, no, you're not. You're not. You're a second-class citizen. And we talk about that later. But but the point is, the federal government has this big bully pulpit where they talk about things. But the truth is, the way our government in America was constructed, back to what I said, is the federal government does not play a big role in it, you know, in, in law enforcement. In 2015, I think there were 178 murder arrests and, and trials at the federal government. For a country of 330 million people, there was 178, Okay. Most large cities in America have already had more than that by Easter, you know, and, and, and that's the entire country. There were zero rapes. There were zero home invasions, right? The things that people talk about, and when you hear federal candidates and, and officials, they say, I don't want to have a safe community. That's what they're talking about. 
home invasions, carjacking, you know what I mean? They're not in that business and, and they never have been. And by constitution and statute, they're not supposed to be. And so who they're arresting and locking up is to a large extent people that when it comes to drug crimes, they're not the people that you would think they are. They, they say that they're going and getting the drug kingpins, which they should, by the way, in international borders and things of that nature. But too often it's the Piper Kermans, the author of Orange is the New Black, who was a drug mule six years ago, you know, that gets a, a, a call from somebody that pled on this or that, and she's got to go do a year in prison. Why? Because well, of the, the the minimum on it, you know, that was being horse traded. And and so it's not what people think it is. They're not arresting the people that, that your listeners probably think they are. The population of the federal prison and the success rate of federal incarceration is ridiculously poor, you know, of, of, of people that turn away from crime when they leave a federal prison. So for the prison fellowships view, I'm just wondering whether the, the focus, uh, kind of the point of the plow, is to take a look at that 300,000, 400,000 list of, of possible you know criminal offenses and say, we need to call this way back. Or is it kind of more of this uh, selective prosecution? Uh, we're saying, yeah, look, we're never going to be able to address all the different crimes, but it is going to be up to the attorney general or pardon me, up to the prosecutors, up to the um, local attorneys general to say, we, you know, here's a kingpin. Let's go after that guy. Here's the, you know, here's the piper. Let's, let's, let's let her pass. Is, so is the answer more on the prosecution side or is it more on the lawmaking side? I think the answer is yes, we support the changing of the laws to be brought in line with our values and that those laws are sentencing policy. I don't think as Christians, we want to give people a pass because giving somebody a pass means that we're not valuing their life either. We're saying you're not worth it. You know what I mean? Uh, when, when you break the law, the, the key is that we've got to find proportion, right? Old Testament words, an eye for an eye. That's not supposed to just be there for people to spit out to justify a war or the death penalty. It's supposed to mean an eye for an eye. You know what I mean? If somebody has two marijuana joints in their pocket, you're not supposed to be able to give them 55 years in prison. That's an injustice. That That's a moral outrage. And we're uh, supporting that in America. That, you know, those of us that say we're pro-life, right, with the unborn, when somebody has been born and they're breathing and they do something wrong, we're letting the government deny them decades of their life with no moral justification for it. And, and we should have the same vigor with an unjust sentence that, that we should apply. So we should, your listeners should care about um, sentencing reform. And, and the answer is that you say, what is that supposed to be? It's supposed to be proportionate. The government, our rights come from the hand of God. You know, that's what makes America different than, than everybody else. And so you can't take away these God-given rights. Our government should not have the power to take those away disproportionately from the damage that somebody does. So you do hold somebody accountable. If, if, if it's a small crime, you do hold them, but you sort that out. I'm assuming that one of the things that you're talking about when you say proportion is touching on the idea of mandatory minimums, which it seems like are in place both at the federal level and at the state level. Um, I was wondering if you could give like the 20 or 30 second version of kind of the premise of mandatory minimums. Yeah. What's the what's kind of the argument? For these mandatory minimums? Yeah, the argument for mandatory minimums are that it's a uniform punishment um, because in our system, uh, John Edwards, who ran for president and got himself tangled up in the legal system after, was famous for saying there's two, two Americas, right? And, and I think uh, there was a poll done uh, when, when this last presidential race was going. People said there are two kinds of justice in America. There's two versions of justice. And I think most people believe that. And I could actually show you statistical evidence that it's by and large true. If you have money, 
to defend yourself, there's one justice system. And if you don't, there's another one. So the idea, like a lot of good ideas with unintended consequences was you're going to make a uniform sentence, right? So if I have a pound of marijuana, I'm a white dude and a uh, person who is a minority, I'm and, and I can afford a lawyer, but they can't afford a lawyer. So let's bundle all these things in together. So we both go in, we both have a pound of marijuana. The idea was we'll both get the same sentence. That, that I wouldn't, if there's a racial bias, which people suspected there were, and which probably was in a great number of jurisdictions in America over the last 50 years, as we know, that it would get rid of a racial bias. It would also get rid of, well, the person with money and good representation would still have the same, the judge doesn't have the flexibility to give them three years. And, and the person who's a member of the minority community that doesn't have a good lawyer, five years. Now the sentence for both of them will be five years. Um, so that was the argument for it. It just got used in a different way. And, and that's the other side of it is what should the federal government be doing? I don't know the federal government should care about someone who's supplying uh, marijuana or, or um, even opiates to their local uh, subdivision or, or school. Pick a city, Boise, Idaho, or, or, or uh, Bay City, Michigan. That, that's not a federal case. That's a state case because the, the, the federal government, 90% of the time, they send somebody to prison, which is the most expensive, least effective way to have somebody pay back their debt and transform their life. But they're not equipped because of the statute to do anything that actually fixes the problem. The states where the, the volume of those 11 million people, they pour in their resources. They're using evidence-based practices. More than 30 of them have had sweeping reforms of their system led in large part with the support of the church and, and, and faith-based advocacy organizations and Christian governors and Christian majorities in their legislatures that have said, we're going to move to our values and we're going to actually try to do stuff that works. And that's at the state level. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that. You mentioned um, eye for an eye kind of as, as a biblical principle for, for justice. Um, you know, my reading of a lot of Bible scholars on that has been to emphasize that what eye for an eye did was it imposed kind of a, we kind of sometimes read it as kind of a minimum, a mandatory minimum sentence, but the idea being, no, that's a, that's a maximum sentence to uh, to stop kind of this cycle of retaliation. And an eye for an eye, you cannot go beyond an eye for an eye. I'm wondering how much that kind of informs kind of how prison fellowship thinks about you know minimum sentence, maximum sentencing, or is there are there other kind of parts of scripture that you guys point to? You are correct that, that it was at, contextually more of a maximum, scripturally not a minimum. And and I suppose people could argue that they're saying get it right exactly. Well, that's hard to do, this short this side of heaven. But I think where God would have us be, and, and if you look into the New Testament where Jesus kind of throws that out, he says that, you know, 
I'm fulfilling these lessons and there's still these rules and these lessons are still valid, but I'm telling you the way to, and, and I'm paraphrasing right now, but if you truly want to grow as a Christian, it's to go further than this. You know, if somebody hits you in the face, give them the other cheek. You know, if somebody steals your coat, give them your shoe. You know, it's Jesus is saying, throw that out. Like that is valid and God will honor and bless it. But if you truly want to let go and and receive the gift of me and and and, and the Spirit, uh, go further. Uh, um, don't seek this out. I don't think that our justice system in America can operate that way. <laughs> I think that because we what's lacking in that equation is there, not everybody in America is Christian, right? And 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 so that it would lead to chaos. So we've got to use the scripture to inform us to say uh, what should we be doing with our values. Uh, and, and I would say what, what we should be doing is going no further than, than what justice is. We shouldn't do that to other people. And so if you're asking for a mandatory minimum, that's okay. So long as it's below, you know, if, if you said anyone who is convicted of first degree rape is going to serve at least one year, I think that people would say that, of course, there's not going to be an example of where that is disproportionate punishment. But we've gone the other way and we've said, um, Let's use it as a deterrent and let's so let's overpunish people for a nonviolent crime like having possession of marijuana or drugs and give them five or ten years to teach people a lesson and it hasn't taught anybody a lesson. It, all it's done is is waste life and and create an immoral imbalance in our justice system. So it sounds like what you're saying is that prison fellowships emphasis is, I mean, I know that, I, you know, one of the things that's big at prison fellowship always has been is this idea of restorative justice. And so the purpose of the kind of the penal system should be more on restoration than on deterrence and warehousing. Right, exactly. It's uh, We call it justice that restores because restorative justice is when it's actually like victim and person that committed the crime mediation and, and resolution which we support, by the way, and, and that's being growing in America. So like, let's say you stole something from my shop, I'm a shopkeeper. The idea would be restorative justice is when we work that out, short of it being in the criminal court, how I can pay that back and, and, and we can move on you know, together. Um, justice that restores is absent because we can't compel victims to be re-victimized by having to participate in this, to say the federal government, the federal or the state government, the authorities will mediate this justice for you. And that's 99% of what happens in America. You know, we'll do this on your behalf. And and that's a good thing, but it's also part of the problem because there's so many crimes where you couldn't find a victim now. And the victim is the state and, and state employees and who you're replenishing is the state funds. What we, we need to seek in this when we say is justice that restores is to say the damage that is being caused by this crime that occurred is the punishment restoring that damage to the victim as a person and also corporately to the community that's affected by that terror in, in the fabric of our society. And that also would put a great deal of scrutiny on a mandatory minimum to say, how would you accomplish that by everybody getting five, 10 or 15 years in prison? How would that restore anybody? It's just a yeah, so it's, it's almost like a framework to kind of evaluate how this might play out at a city or a state level, then, a philosophy. Yeah, and that's why so many cities and states have moved away from mandatory minimums, is when they when they when we said, let's talk about our values first. Let's not tell you you're right or wrong on how many years a mandatory minimum is. Let's talk about what you're trying to accomplish and what your values are. And And they would say, well, my values are I want people to pay it back. Well, okay, let's look at this scheme of mandatory minimums, is that paying anybody back? Well, 
turns out it doesn't. So a lot of states have actually, including my own state of Michigan, uh, gotten rid of mandatory minimums altogether, other than, like I said, in some extreme examples of, of um, some homicide and, and uh, rape and sex crime instances. Uh, but they got rid of basically everything else. And those states, are, are they don't, they're not looking back because they believe that they have a more just system now. But our federal government hasn't opened up their eyes to that yet. They haven't been willing to consider that. Give us a sense of what you predict the impact of sessions will be over the criminal justice reform landscape the next couple of years. My prediction was originally because um, when he was the United States senator, he was largely um, kind of blocking you know, uh, um, the reform bills that probably would have passed 80 to 20 in the Senate. And he was blocking them because the Senate, you can do that as an individual. And so he's had a really long history of trying to oppose these things. But when you talk to Senator, then Senator, now Attorney General Sessions, he's got a great heart for these issues. And and, and he does care. I think he, he, he is trying to get it done the right way instead of an expedient way. So I would say the manner in which he's doing things is actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be countercultural here and say, is actually going to make it more likely that we'll see criminal justice reform in the next two years by him taking this hard line. Because he's he, he's saying, I'm not going to bend at all. I'm going to do it this way. And when you do that, the system is very unjust and it's very broken and the public is going to see that. And it's going to kind of force Congress into action. Back in the day, I was doing a lot of reporting on prison rape issues, especially prison fellowships work on there. And, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Sessions and prison fellowship worked a lot together on that, right? Yeah, Sessions introduced uh, the Prison Rape Elimination Act in the Senate. He did, and he championed the Fair Sentencing Act, too. So that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm not trying to say that Jeff Sessions is a, is a lost soul or his values are different than ours. I, I'm, I'm saying that he's trying to do his job you know, the best he can, just like a Supreme Court justice would. You know, anybody in the justice system that, that is a conservative and, and as a Christian, they're saying, I'm not supposed to do what I feel like. You know, I'm not the emperor here. I'm supposed to do what I'm authorized to do. And and so by him taking that line, it, it creates these other opportunities. And he does have a history, though, when he has the opportunity to speak into injustice with the disparity of crack and, and powdered uh, cocaine and and with prison rape, very forceful speech on prison rape. You know that that was that was violent immorality, something that nobody, not even the worst criminal in America's history, has ever been sentenced to being exposed to sexual violence in against their will in prison. And that every Christian should take a stand against that. That was Jeff Session on on the Senate floor. I get I understand what you're saying as far as giving him good faith with regards to how he's calling for a more stricter or narrower interpretation of the laws, as is. I guess the part that doesn't make sense to me, though, is why he was so adamant about pursuing criminal justice reforms while he was in the Senate and why he went about blocking those bills. I think that the United States Senate has historically been the slowest moving political body ever created in the face of this earth. And um, the last five years of what we were doing was we were chipping away and getting closer and closer to consensus. So the people that were blocking it, folks like Senator Sessions, what they were doing was they were trying to get um, answers to questions, uh, knowing that it would probably be unlikely at the pace that Senate moves that they would get to review sentencing bills in the next five or 10 years after. And so, again, their, their focus was on details. You know, what, what about this? What about that? You know, uh, get this right, get that right. So do you think that having a Republican controlled executive branch and legislator branch makes it more or less likely that 
um, reform could get passed in the next year or two? That's a great question. I actually think if I go by what happened in the states around the country, it's actually been easier to do when the Republicans control the state legislature and the executive office because of the uh, politicization of um, soft on crime notions. From the 80s, people feared that that came from the right. So if the right is leading the bills and chairing the committee, you know, that passes it, it actually makes it more likely that it would pass and it would become law. So it's actually a good environment in our country right now. Um, We're still optimistic that we could have got something done last year, all the way up through the lame duck in December. And I'm still optimistic that we're going to be able to do stuff this year because there's overwhelming support for it. And I think Congress can act, but that we need to hold Congress accountable for it and, and different from other faith issues like abortion that have been somewhat politicized, you know, and, and have moved past just the values discussion. Justice hasn't been. And and so the block of Christians that support justice reform in Congress is an overwhelming majority. And it's not going to change if the Republicans are in control or the Democrats are in control. So the point that we have right now is to just move forward with this coalition talking about our values. Prison Fellowship's coming out um, later this month with a justice declaration with other Christian leaders to kind of define what we seek, um, to work with our Faith and Justice Fellowship group, which is elect, kind of a caucus of elected officials, like a pro-life caucus would be, you know, where, where they declare that when they work in justice, they, their faith informs them, and um, grow these different constituencies so we can have a durable coalition uh, to, to advance justice reform this session of Congress, but also uh, every couple of years, keep improving it, a more just union, keep moving toward it, moving toward it, moving toward it, instead of uh, uh, things being stalled out and injustices, like we've seen the mandatory minimum uh, scheme riddled with over the last uh, 20 years. So I mentioned at the beginning of the show that you have partnered at times with the NAACP, the ACLU, the Heritage Foundation, um, and other really ideologically diverse partners. What brings all these very kind of disparate groups together? The start of this, the origin of this was actually, um, we created a document, which you can find on our website, with our model of, of what justice values are. And there's 18 values, and we kind of put it in the shape of a house, like uh, the living temple, where were the stones to it, with these 18 values. Six for the people that caused the crime, six for the people that were hurt by the crime, and six principles for the community that's affected by crime, and said, this is what Christians believe. And then when there's a scriptural basis for it, but just this, here's the secular term, you know, words like proportion, you know, constructive culture, closure. These are the values, and and here's why. And and the secular groups like the NAACP and the ACLU and, and, and you know, other organizations came forward and said, wait a second, those are our values too. And we said, that's okay. You know what I mean? Because what you're saying now is you're attracted to Christian values, you know, so we're going to work with you because you're saying you share our values, um, that we're not modifying our values to work with you. And that was really the, the, what began it. And, and um, this past year, when we announced that we were going to do Second Chance Month, right? Get this, it's Second Chance Month in April, which is the basis for our entire religion It, it is the cross and, and what Christ did for us to give us all a second chance, you know, in, in this life and to be born again into him. And we had 65 other national organizations come forward. Now, they weren't ready to be baptized that day, you know what I mean? And, right. <laughs> but they, there, many of them were Christians already, you know, the leaders and other things, but their organizations were decidedly secular. 
But they came forward and said, you know, we're not a Christian organization, but that's our value. You know, that American values are to have second chances. So that's how it's working. Probably not since the civil rights movements back in the 60s was faith so welcomed by Republicans and Democrats as a contributor to the debate. Well, thanks for sharing all of that, Craig. And I know from speaking to your colleague, Heather, that you guys have also just made it a point to really build relationships and bridges with people from all varieties of backgrounds. Very much in keeping with the kind of Colson legacy. You know, this uh, guy who was a kind of Republican Nixon hatchet man uh, who you know, created great coalitions, uh, not just politically and within prison fellowship, but, uh, you know, was a leader in the Evangelical and Catholics Together movement and bringing bringing a lot of people together on justice issues and, and uh, faith issues. So this is an area that uh, some communities are deeply, deeply, deeply affected by. Um, other areas, it feels more distant um, in, in, in some communities. Other than, you know, uh, volunteering in prisons, reading uh, prison fellowship literature and distributing it, um, what, what, what's kind of like one action point where people can start thinking about more criminal justice issues beyond uh, visiting the prisoner? You know, there are other Christian organizations like the Salvation Army that help me fulfill the command of Matthew 25 that my wife and I and my kids are supposed to live by, right? But I couldn't have the time to go and feed, you know, the hungry or clothe those without. And so they help me do these things. And so I hope your listeners would think of prison fellowship that way. It's, there's three things. There's uh, donating money, which which I try to do to other Christian organizations that fulfill these other commands. There's volunteering, you know, as, as I, you know, my family, we try to do, and we need you. And then there's uh, participating in, in these things. And, and we need all three. We need donors, volunteers, and participants in this. And if, if you're looking to get your church involved, come in and let us know who you are. A lot of times people think advocacy is, is, is politics, and many times it is. But it's really that voice for the voiceless, right? That's, so it's a global advocacy. There's not a lot of people out there being the voice for the prisoner, their family, their kids, uh, injustice in this world. Sign up. Give us your email in the advocacy area. You know, if you want to help us with Angel Tree, Angel Tree Camping is coming up for the summer where we, we give grants and, and scholarships to incarcerated children to go to these Christian summer camps because their parents can't send them there. So we give a scholarship for them to go there so we can break that cycle of incarceration. And yes, then you'll find the resources and other things that uh, we can work with your church on, whether it be uh, making the study guides available or uh, having your church participate in uh, Second Chance Month events. There, there's a lot to do, but it, it's simple. Just come to Prison Fellowship. Let us know who you are and, and what you're interested in. We'll take it from there. Thanks, Craig. As we wrap this discussion, just a reminder to everyone, please feel free to send us your thoughts, um, ideas, comments, whatever you'd like. And we're happy to share some of that on the show. You can do that at facebook.com slash podcast. We're also on Twitter at ctpodcasts. Um, and either of those formats are great ways to reach us. We're not going to move to time the show we call Precious Moments, when people go around and share something that is bringing them joy and also where they can be found online. Craig, do you want to go first? I gave a, a speech that was a little bit about justice, but it was mostly about how I got sober. Uh, 29 years in addiction, tried everything in this world, and nothing worked, and I lost everything. But God let me lose everything and stay alive, and I surrendered in Christ. My life magically changed. I wrote this book called Highly Functional about the memoir of the story, and so many in the 
church um, are struggling in addiction right now. And I just, this week, I had the privilege of several people telling me, it's great what you do in justice, Craig, but this book and, and the work that you're doing in addiction actually helped save my life. And I wouldn't have been any good to anybody unless I got that done first. So that's my precious moment. It's a privilege that God used Chuck Colson and me and other people that have fallen way, way down from what's respectable in this world, use that experience for the benefit of other people. And that's a privilege. Awesome. Are you on Twitter? Uh, I'm on Twitter. Yeah, I'm, I'm at Craig DeRoche on Twitter. Uh, yeah, come find me and, and uh, on Facebook. And, uh, you know, the book's available on Amazon. I wasn't just trying to sell the book, but yeah, come <laughs> find me. If you're listening and you're struggling in addiction or your spouse is or other people that you know that you think that a message from another highly functional, high performing person could get through to them, reach out to me because I want to help. Thank you for sharing that. Ted, do you want to go? Yeah, you know, I, I, I tend to share about board games rather than work stuff. But uh, this week, I actually, my precious moment uh, was I had a great lunch uh, this week with the folks from Oasis International. They are an organization actually based right here in Wheaton who put together the Africa or who coordinated, I should say, the Africa Study Bible, which uh, is an, an amazing, it's a great study Bible. And I'm just impressed with their work. I uh, got to meet with Matthew Elliott, their president, uh, Hannah Rasmussen, who I actually got to spend some time with when I was in Kenya. And so it was a nice trans, you know, transitioning back to U.S. life to hang out with some folks who have passions uh, for Africa. But also just hearing hearing some of their work, hearing some of their, you know, we'd share some struggles with finding some of the best uh, Christian African scholars and, and uh, teachers um, and helping them to uh, to communicate to, to larger audiences. So finding like-minded souls who have similar passions, that's always a great joy for me. So that was, that was a lovely time this week. And you're on Twitter at Ted Olson. I am on Twitter at Ted Olson. Yes, I I am. I I have been tweeting less and less because I'm finding Twitter less and less precious, less and less joyful. But, you know, change you want to see in the world, Ted. DM me and I'll, I'll, I'll say hi. Seriously, be the change. Well, I try to. I, I, yeah, I, I tweeted about Scrooge McDuck yesterday. So there's that. All right. I'll just continue your precious moment then because I actually wrote CT's piece about the Africa Study Bible and I was just so impressed by the intentionality that they put forth in putting this together. I believe almost every single contributor, there's about there's over 300, almost every single one is of African descent. They set all these different goals and benchmarks with regards to how many people they're going to pick from different parts of the continent. Yeah, every every country in Africa is represented, yeah. Which is astounding. Yeah. They set um, gender benchmarks. I think they wanted one-fourth. Uh, yeah, I think it was like a quarter of the contributors to be female, um, which I think they were close to that target. And just for people who don't know what it is, it's essentially a way to read through the Bible and you get different anecdotes or cultural interpretations or things that really cast it through an African lens. And and uh, yeah, I just got Ted dropped by a full Bible yesterday. Before that, I don't see the book of Genesis. So it's really cool to see what they put together. I'm on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L, and that is it for us this week. Thanks for everyone for listening. Craig, it was awesome to have you on the show. We're glad you could come by. Our producers are Richard Clark and Cray Allred. You can subscribe to the show by going on iTunes and searching for Quick to Listen. You can also search. They're, they're, they're having us call it Apple Podcast now. Who is they? The Apple. They're saying don't call it iTunes. Don't say you can find our podcast on iTunes now. Isn't that weird? Go on iTunes and rate us. That's the program you can <laughs> to have get to, to the use. Man. Use Stitcher, Overcast. There's other apps for people that want to pay for 
you know, a podcast app. Anyway, thank you everyone for who listens and rates the show. I was reading through some of the reviews last week and I found it just so encouraging to hear that people are listening to it. And we do read every comment. We do. It's true. And talk about them here at the office. So if you want to get talked about here at the office, write us a review on iTunes. There's your incentive. All right. Take care. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.